Welcome back to the Investing on the Go podcast brought to you by Fun Calibre. This week, we're discussing the UK's smallest companies, the importance of owner culture, and how companies can move higher up the cap chain. I'm Stacey West, and today I'm joined by Victoria Stevens, co-manager of the Lion Trust UK Microcap Fund. Victoria, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. Now, smaller companies have had a difficult backdrop since around 2016, but this fund has remained incredibly resilient in that time. Why is that? Yeah, I think that the key really to our approach on the team is is the consistency of application of our investment process. So we have this relentless focus on the characteristics of companies which we seek out as part of that investment process that we stick to through thick and thin. And I think that the thing about the market is it is so easy to be pulled in so many conflicting directions all at once by so much noise being out there in the market. And so if you find that you've got a framework within which you can make your investment decisions, you know, the importance of that can't really be overstated when it comes to trying to tune out all that noise that's going on around you and really try and just focus in on the attributes of the businesses and the business models, which which we think have the power to outperform, you know, over the medium and the long term. So if we take a moment just to um, just to outline that investment process in very brief terms, now it it traces its origins back over 25 years um, to or almost 25 years, I should say, uh, from when uh, Anthony Cross first joined Lion Trust. Uh, and the first thing that we do um, right at the very beginning of the investment process is that we, and it's really important for smaller companies and micro caps, is that we require all of the companies we invest in to be profitable prior to the point of purchase. And that's really important to us. You know, we think it reduces the risk of those earlier stage investments, uh, which obviously can can um, all too easily find themselves in a bit of a bubble uh, where there's very little valuation support if either the company disappoints operationally or, as we've obviously seen in the first half of 2022, uh, you get these wider market bubbles. So that's a really key point um, before we start out. And then comes what we're looking for in the companies themselves. So um, really for us, um, the first stage is all about the search for intangible assets, uh, which we think form this key barrier to competition for our businesses. Um, It's these intangible assets that we think is going to make their product or service inherently very difficult for competitors to replicate. And if we get that right, if we've assessed that intangible asset strength correctly, uh, you know, the company should be able to go on and exploit that barrier to competition over a very long period of time. And that, as we all know, can drive very strong long term share price returns for investors. And so our first gateway for any company into the fund is that it has to possess one of three intangible asset strengths that we value or prize more highly than any others. And those three are intellectual property, a strength in distribution or high levels of recurring income. And any company we buy into the fund has to have at least one of those three before we'll consider it for inclusion. And we'll also be uh, building up a a picture of the company's intangible asset strengths below that level as well. Things like brand strength, customer relationships, um, procedural skills, format skills, culture, and so on. And then the second stage of that process is to test that theory. Uh, And by by that, I mean that we analyze a company's cash flow returns on capital um, to try and test whether in practice, that superior competitive advantage is working for that company in terms of generating these superior financial returns. And really what we're looking for there is something very simple. We're looking for companies that can consistently earn a return um, on capital, which is 
comfortably in excess of their cost of capital, thereby generating excess returns, which ideally they can then reinvest back into the business to help power their future growth path. And then the last thing I'll just say on the process is that we require uh, all the holdings in the Lion Trust UK microcap fund to have at least 3% of their equity owned by directors and senior management teams. So it really aligns us with those entrepreneurial founder managers who, who take a similar kind of long-term view of capital appreciation um, to ourselves. And does investing in those types of companies that you've just outlined prepare you for an inflationary environment? Yes, I, I think it does. Um, I mean, there are two elements to that question. It's, it's what's going on in the market and how the market is reacting to that in, on a short-term view. And then there's the other side of it, which is how are the businesses themselves faring uh, amid the current economic challenges? Um, now, we'll say that as part of our investment process, making macroeconomic predictions does not feature in that process. Of course, we're aware of what's going on around us. But, you know, as I've been explaining, we've, we focus exclusively on bottom-up stock picking um, in, in terms of our process. Um, but clearly, you know, it's been a, an extremely challenging period for all companies to navigate over the past year or two. Um, and there's a huge amount of uncertainty that remains over you know, the direction, the duration of those inflationary pressures, what the monetary policy response will continue to be and the extent to which that squeeze on the consumer spills over into business to business demand potentially as well. Um, and what you've seen in terms of the market response to um, rising interest rates as a way to try and combat um, inflation um, for much of this year is that the valuations of growth investments have come under pressure. And that's thanks to this sort of mechanistic impact of rising discount rates on the perceived present value of stocks, um, which expect very high growth rates into the future. And so in some cases, what you've seen is you know, this very sharp derating of companies, which really haven't often haven't really put a foot wrong operationally. But if I take the other side of that coin um, and just focus and zoom in on the operational performance of our companies, which is all really that we, in terms of our investment process, can can control. Um, you know, I think the, that we really strongly believe that our companies should prove to be quite well set um, in terms of managing a period of, of higher inflation. And the real key to that is, is pricing power. So what we think is that thanks to those intangible barriers to competition that we're seeking out as part of the investment process, our company should have a greater degree of pricing power than your average company. So they should be able to be better placed to be able to pass on input cost inflation to their customers. Um, and already we've seen lots of our companies so far this year, you know, updating the market um, and talking about having been able to do that to pass on those, those rising costs to customers, which of course means they are themselves better able to protect their margin amid a period of high inflation. And then there's probably another point to be made about the types of companies that we invest in, which is that, you know, I've explained that we focus on intangible, not tangible asset strengths. And so on the whole, our companies tend to be less capital intensive than your average. And then because they're run by these typically conservative owner managers, they also tend to have stronger balance sheets than the market. Uh, these owner managers are, 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 as I say, quite, quite conservative with um, taking on lots of debt. So they, they tend to be quite averse to that type of behavior. And both of those two things are, are really key in terms times of rising inflation and rising interest rates to try and counter it. Because if you've got a business which is less capital intensive and has a stronger balance sheet, it doesn't have to spend so much of its short-term cash flow 
on simply maintaining heavy asset bases or servicing a, a heavy debt burden. Instead, they've got a much better chance of being able to continue to allocate their capital to investment and growth, taking that long-term view, which hopefully we believe should position them well to continue to take market share and then power ahead once these uh, challenging times uh, recede in the future. And you just mentioned their owner culture as this intangible asset strength that you're you're looking for. Um, has that changed throughout COVID? Um, no, I don't think it has. I think really what we've seen there is is it come into sharp focus. Um, so what we tend to see from our owner managers and that culture is is a couple of things. I think that the aligning yourself with this really powerful entrepreneurial founder manager is probably quite well understood by investors. You know, they'll kind of innately grasp why that's an attractive dynamic um, to be aligned with. You know, often they've got this long termism to the business, a, a keen focus on innovation nurturing, investing in talent and training and development and so on. And that can be really powerful when it comes to to driving the business forward. And then what you've got on the other side, which perhaps is, is slightly less well understood, is, is this, these real characteristics of, of risk aversion. Um, so, you know, what we tend to find from our owner managers is that they are much less willing to take on those big, um, you know, risky acquisitions that can so often go wrong for the market. And they're also much much less willing to take on loads of debt. Um, you know, if you think about, I mean, it's a, it's a back of the fag packet um, sort of type stat, but I think it's quite powerful in illustrating just how much of their own capital is at stake. You know, the average company in the microcap fund is around about 125 million market cap. And on average, I mean, I know um, we look for 3% management equity ownership as a threshold, but in reality, it's much higher than that. The average is about 20%. So these companies, these owner managers of our businesses have about 25 million pounds worth of their own capital at stake in these businesses. So it doesn't really come as that much of a surprise that they are careful to protect that capital. And so, you know, regarding your question about COVID, you know, really what we saw is that those both of those two characteristics came right to the fore in the first part of the uh, the crisis where, in, where the whole market was panicking. You know, it was amazing. Our, our owner managers um, were really, really benefiting from that balance sheet strength that I referenced. Uh, you know, and the market obviously was was paying a lot of attention to how financially secure companies were. So, so the companies benefited in in that sense. But then also in terms of that long term outlook, um, you know, we also saw that time and time again where the companies were using um, using the disruption to invest for the future. Um, I'll give you an example there um, to try and illustrate it. So we had a company called Mind Gym, uh, which is a corporate training business. So its whole raison d'etre is using the principles of behavioral science to try and catalyze change via training uh, within a corporate environment. So they provide these bite-sized tutorials or workouts, as they call them, mind workouts. Um, and they own the content within uh, within those tutorials. And they used to deliver them face-to-face -face via you know, this network of hundreds of self-employed coaches all across the globe. But of course, what you saw in the first part of COVID was that all the clients were beginning to cancel that face-to-face -face training. And so the founder, um, Octavius Black, uh, him and his wife still own over half of the equity of the company, um, thought, well, I've got this, this really strong balance sheet, substantial cash reserves. 
I'm going to accelerate investment into my virtually delivered and digital training proposition because um, that's something they were thinking about anyway as a company. It was somewhere that, where they needed to go. But of course, COVID dramatically shortened uh, the time horizon for that digital investment for, for so many businesses. And, you know, the company was able to do that because it had that long term uh, mindset about investment. And it's a great example of what we so often see uh, those owner managers doing in terms of taking that long term approach to to capital investment and, um, and um, you know, to capital allocation and investment, even at a really tricky time uh, when others might sort of put their head under the duvet and try and hide. You mentioned there in your answer acquisition of uh, these companies and how challenging can that be, uh, M&A, in terms of losing companies in your portfolio? Yeah, so in terms of inbound takeover activity for companies in our portfolio, um, what, what we'll always say is that it can be really, really bittersweet. So you've got this shorter term advantage because you're getting what's usually quite a, quite a decent premium that's paid by the buyer. And that's obviously helpful to fund returns in the near term. But then you're having to offset that against the fact that you're losing a business, which you believe has really strong ability to compound away and deliver you strong growth over a much longer time horizon, which is the whole reason why you're invested in it in the first place. And what we'll often say is that, you know, we, we get quite a lot of takeovers from our funds across the market cap range, including the micro cap fund. Um, and we think that's because the, the very characteristics that we're looking for in businesses as part of the investment process you know, those intangible asset strengths, which allow those businesses to deliver superior financial returns, are obviously also interesting and attractive to buyers, whether they be corporate or private equity buyers. It's that that difficulty of replication, that, that unique nature of the whatever product or service the company is providing, which is the very thing that's appealing to the acquirer as well as to, our, to ourselves. Um, but in terms of, you know, how we uh, how we think about them. I mean, I, it's definitely true to say that some of them are are harder to swallow than others. Um, you know, particularly if you feel that a company's been taken out on the cheap or at a um, at a point in its in its own evolution which doesn't fully reflect its its future uh, potential. Um, so one example there perhaps was uh, you know we had a, a financials holding uh, in the fund Nucleus, um, which is an investment platform business, which was taken over last year. Uh, 2021. Um, and it had, you know, it was, a, it was quite a decent premium for the takeout on the screen, but we really strongly felt that the company was at a real inflection point in trading and operational performance after what had been a couple of quite challenging years. Um, and that sort of inflection point, um, that recovery wasn't yet reflected really at all in the share price. So you know, that is one example of where it's it's really, it can be quite frustrating. Um, but, you know, that's that's the beauty of the stock market, isn't it? You know, effectively, it's hoisting this for sale sign over the door of every company all the time. Um, and you get that transparency of what the market is willing to pay for the assets. And you get transparency when confirmed corporate activity comes to light. So, you know, that should should theoretically invite competitive tension between any potential rival bidders to play out. And if it doesn't, well, you know, we might not agree with the price. We might choose to vote for or against. But overall, if it gets voted through, you know, we we have to accept that and move on. But it is definitely, you know, a double-edged sword. And UK companies, smaller companies in particular, seem to be once again in the eye of the storm. So has this made them cheap at the moment from a buying perspective? 
yeah, cheapness, that, that, that concept, you know, it's a slippery fish. Um, so you've got two sides to it, haven't you? So you've got the, obviously the price side of the equation, but also you've got the other side, the earnings that you're basing um, that valuation off or, or sales or EBITDA or free cash flow or dividend or whatever you're choosing to use. Um, and we've definitely had a big old crunch in the price side of that equation over the year to date. You know, we've had some, as I, as I said, some really significant deratings of particularly of expensive growth style stocks. But what you've got now with the economic environment looking a lot more challenging is the extent to which the, the earnings or the free cash flow forecasts of the business might or might not prove to be reliable in the face of this um, the, these economic challenges. And so, you know, the obvious question is, well, where does that leave you as a fund manager in terms of trying to, to call where we are and make decisions? And I think I'd, I'd always come back to the fact that we're really fortunate um, with the Lion Trust Microcap Fund because we've got this long-term time horizon for our holdings. You know, we we can try and look for the opportunity in short-term disruption. We don't necessarily have to call exactly correctly what's going to happen over six months. We've got the advantage of predominantly generating our alpha from long-term compounding of companies that we hold for many years. So we've got this opportunity to try and look for longer-term value in our holdings, although obviously we have to be aware of those shorter-term risks to the investment case. And I think what, you know, I would say that we're probably a lot more excited today, sitting where we are uh, today with the market having fallen to where it's fallen in valuation terms than, than where we found ourselves towards the end of last year. I mean, the market had been really roaring away post-COVID and, and certain areas of the market and certain companies' valuations did look, you know, quite stretched at that point. So we've been really trying to be active in terms of using that short-term disruption um, to top up holdings where we've got long-term conviction. And that's been particularly, you know, the case where we've seen um, perhaps a, a, an update to the market where we fully understand why the companies um, put something out that's that's disappointing the market, but we can take that longer term view and we can you know, perhaps be contrarian in the moment because we've got that longer time horizon. So a really great example there is a company called, that we own called um, InSTEM. Um, InSTEM's a provider of uh, software and services to the pharmaceutical and life sciences and biotechnology sector. So it helps clients to to manage cl clinical trials. It helps them to make submissions to the regulator about drugs and then analyzes all that critical data and provides it back to the company in various um, in, in various ways. Um, and they came out a couple of uh, months ago and it was a strong set of results, but they were looking forward and saying, well, you know, we've got we can see spiraling wage inflation and that's going to impact our forecast for the coming period. So we took a, a meeting with them and we heard about how usually they put up their wages by kind of mid single digits all every year in the early part of the year. But this point this year, obviously, they were seeing, you know, really strong wage inflation coming through in that early part of the year. So they delayed it a couple of months and actually made a much bigger um, increase to their um, people's uh, wages than they might perhaps usually would do, cognizant of needing to retain that talent. But critically, what we also heard was that they were putting up prices to their clients by 12 percent across the board to counter the impact of that on the business. And the reason why uh, the second um, part of the year was being impacted in terms of the forecast was simply because there's a lag in being able to implement those price increases. But for us, you know, that was a really great sign that actually the long term investment case was intact because the business really did believe in the power of its products and services um, and their ability to, to 
you know, maintain that price discipline, um, you know, with their customers. Um, and that that was a good sign to us that the market's initial reaction to that news was actually overdone. So we were topping up on the back of that. And that approach, you know, trying to see that long term value behind the short term move it, it is really important, I think, in these times where where the market is disrupted. You and your co-managers aim, as you said, to be very long term holders of companies where they can actually graduate from the UK microcap fund that we've been discussing to the UK Smaller Companies Fund, which is also elite rated. And um, I was just wondering, can you give us an example of this happening between the portfolios, this graduating in a sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's, it's the beauty of having this range of funds across the market cap range. Uh, we all we operate all of them under the same investment process and they span the whole of the UK equity spectrum. So obviously um, this, it does what it says on the tin, the UK micro cap fund focuses on the smallest companies um, in the market. But, you know, we run other com- uh, funds which which look higher up the market cap chain. And for microcap, we look to buy stocks which are capitalized under 175 million. And then we'll look to start our exit once the stock grows to 275 million and above. It won't necessarily be immediate, but that will sort of start our selling clock in our heads. And as I said, the average company in that fund is about 125 million. But the idea very much is that, you know, with this range of funds that that ideas can graduate up the chain, as you said, if they're successful. And we can really benefit from having that really long period of ownership, really long period of getting to know these companies um, and, and getting under their skin for many, many years. And I mean, there are numerous examples of it happening over the life of the microcap fund so far. Um, but probably still the best example that I could give you was would be YouGov. Um, simply because it was the it was the largest holding in microcap when we launched the fund. Um, it's since left microcap's territory far behind. You know, we do try and keep the microcap fund as a dedicated vehicle for investors trying to access those smallest businesses on the market. But it was um, added subsequently to the UK Smaller Companies Fund and our larger special situations fund as well. So a really successful example of a business that we identified earlier on when it was much, much smaller and has gone on to compound away and deliver really significant value for the funds across our our suite of products. Great. And then just maybe we can finish with another example. Um, I'm hoping that you can take us through a more quirky example. So maybe something a little (laughs) bit different that our listeners might not be familiar with. As you mentioned, you get to talk to the smallest, you know, companies in the UK. So I'm hoping you have one quirky example you can leave us with. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm going to tell you about a company which I, I, you know, I love talking about. I think it's an absolutely fascinating business. And not only is it not very well known on the market, but it's also hides within the corporate umbrella. You know, such an interesting kind of subdivision of the company. So the company in question is James Cropper. So James Cropper's history is of um, a paper mill, which was founded, I think it's over 175 years ago in, in Burnside in Cumbria. And um, that paper mill business, you know, you might sort of think to yourself, well, can't really see where the intangible asset strengths might be in a kind of traditional paper mill business. Um, The really interesting bit of the business for us is not that traditional paper division. It's that in more recent times, they've taken their experience in what they call non-woven um, to apply um, their expertise to, to newer, more advanced material markets via a, a division which it calls technical fibre products. And this division produces these ultra-light, non-woven carbon fibre veils, which are used to coat 
composite surfaces. Um, so it's used in industries like aerospace and defense, high-end automotive, uh, clean energy, and so on. And it's, you know, these these veils are amazing. You know, they're so light that when the company comes in to present to you, you know, they'll hold one up above the desk and they'll take their hand away and it will literally float down as if it's almost a feather, um, the lightest um, version of it. Um, but the idea is that these veils provide this superior finish um, to composite surfaces and also can imbue them with a range of different qualities. So, for example, electromagnetic shielding, um, so used on um, you know, stealth fighter jets um, in the defense sector. So a really fascinating business, um, growing far faster um, than the paper mill business, much less subject um, to the vagaries of um, you know, input cost prices buffeting around. So the paper mill um, side of the business is really impacted, for example, by the pulp price going up and down by energy costs, for example, and so on. Um, and I think what's what's also super interesting about the, um, the TFP division is that it has a range of solutions for the hydrogen industry. So of particular relevance, of course, to the climate transition. Um, so it makes the gas exchange layer within hydrogen fuel cells um, and has quite high market share in that nascent but growing market. So a really interesting, highly technological business, which has emerged out of what you might look at on paper and think, no pun intended, <laughs> um, and think, you know, is quite an old school, um, you know, dare we say it, quite a kind of dull um, industrial business. So a really fascinating one, I think, um, and one which we hope will do well for the, the fund over many years to come. That is very interesting. Way more than just a paper mill. As, <laughs> as you alluded to. Uh, well, Victoria, thank you very much for your time and your insights. You're so welcome. Thanks very much for your time today and allowing me to come onto the podcast. The Lion Trust UK Microcap Fund follows in the footsteps of the successful elite-rated Lion Trust UK Smaller Companies and Lion Trust Special Situation Funds by applying the same team's proven economic advantage investment process to an area of the market that tends to be under-researched, Britain's smallest companies. To learn more about the Lion Trust UK Microcap Fund, visit fundcalibert.com. And don't forget to subscribe to the Investing on the Go podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. Please remember, we've been discussing individual companies to bring investing to life for you. It's not a recommendation to buy or sell. The fund may or may not still hold these companies at the time of listening. Elite ratings are based on Fund Calibre's research methodology and are the opinion of Fund Calibre's research team only. 